pretty much everyone should be required to go to DBT skills group just while they're enrolled in college. Hello, and welcome to the Yeah No Journal Club, episode number three. In each episode, we dissect an article from the psychiatry literature with the goal of understanding the clinical importance of the study and key aspects of research design and methods. We start with a confusing sentence from the paper and go from there with the goal of getting from, yeah, no, I don't get it, to yes, yes, this totally makes sense. I'm Dr. Adrian Dela Cruz. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Hi, I'm Adam Brenner. I'm the Vice Chair for Education and Psychiatry at UT Southwestern in Dallas and the Residency Director. I'm Marissa Toops. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at UT Dell Medical School. And the paper we're talking about today is from Marsha Linehan and colleagues. It's called Dialectical Behavior Therapy for High Suicide Risk in Individuals with Borderline Personality Disorder, a Randomized Clinical Trial and Component Analysis. It was published in JAMA Psychiatry in 2015, Issue 72, Volume 5, pages 475 to 482. Adam, I understand this week you have a couple of sentences uh, that you want to talk with us about. Yes, I couldn't bring it down to just one sentence. So first, a sentence from the introduction, where they say the overarching aim of the present study was to conduct a dismantling study of DBT. We predicted that standard DBT would be significantly better than DBT skills training or DBT individual therapy, reducing suicide attempts, non-suicidal self-injury, inpatient and ED admissions, depression, anxiety, and treatment dropout. We made no predictions for differences between uh, DBT-S, skills training, and DBT-I for individual therapy. So that's what they say in the introduction. Then in the discussion, though, they say the focus of this randomized clinical trial was to determine whether the skills training component of DBT skills is necessary and or sufficient to reduce suicidal behaviors and improve other outcomes. I am not sure whether something changed about the focus and the goal or whether I'm just not quite understanding these things, but it felt to me as I was reading through the paper that there was some confusion about what it was that they were really setting out to prove. I think there's a Venn diagram of intent. There's some overlap between those two statements. They're not mutually exclusive, but they don't exactly say the same thing. So I think the authors were seeking to understand, in part as the developers of DBT, how DBT has been practiced a lot in the community is that it's very rare, at least in my clinical experience, that patients actually get all of the components of DBT. They tend to get kind of what happens to be available in the community and what they can afford that's available in the community. So we have patients who have a history of self-injury and borderline personality disorder who are just in a DBT skills group or who are just doing individual therapy, um, who are doing medication management and individual therapy. I've also, just as you said, I've seen it pulled apart and people get a little of this or a little of that. And so there's, there's like a really, there's a question about, is that okay? The question is, is it better? Like, is it worth it to put do the whole thing? Are outcomes better? I mean, you know, these are patients who don't do well. So it's, but 
but it, this is very resource intensive. I mean, Adrian's right. There are very few people who provide the total package who take insurance and to send some, a patient to do it is extremely expensive. So very briefly, they recruited 99 women who had a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, as well as a history of suicide attempts and self-harm. So they had to have at least one act of either a suicide attempt or non-suicidal self-injury in the eight weeks before randomization, as well as at least two incidents of non-suicidal self-injury or suicide attempt in the past five years with at least one suicide attempt in the past year. And these women were randomized to either standard DBT, a DBT skills group, or a DBT individual therapy. And the DBT individual therapist was specifically told that they could not teach DBT skills in individual therapy. Randomization was stratified by age, the number of lifetime suicide attempts, the number of lifetime episodes of non-suicidal self-injury, the number of hospitalizations in the past year, as well as depression severity. So they wanted to keep the amount and type of treatment contacts as balanced as they could across the groups. So the DBTI who was doing the individual therapy had the option of attending group recreational activities to be their group. And the patients who were in the DBT skills group had individual case management. Again, the case managers were instructed not to make specific DBT-informed therapeutic interventions. The authors described the study as single-blind. What they mean is that the outcomes assessors were the people who were blinded to what group people were assigned to, and they assessed outcomes quarterly during the year of treatment as well as in the year following treatment. Um, So this is a pretty intensive study with a year of treatment and a year of follow-up. So they had a lot of different outcome measures, and they looked at them both during the period of treatment as well as the year after treatment. So there were no differences between the groups on the occurrence of suicide attempts, the mean number of attempts among those who attempted suicide, the occurrence of any act of non-suicidal self-injury, or the time to first suicide attempt. All of the groups had reductions from baseline on the following measures, suicide attempts, suicidal ideation, the medical severity of self-injury, the use of crisis services for suicidality, and the improvements in reasons for living. Standard DBT, so the full components, was better than DBT individual therapy in the year following treatment on whether or not patients were seen in the emergency room for a psychiatry reason or admitted to the psychiatry inpatient unit. And the DBT individual therapy group had some worse outcomes during the year of treatment on measures like anxiety and depression and frequency of non-suicidal self-injury. But when you looked in the year after treatment, that's when the, the DBT individual group made their improvements. And so in that year after treatment, those measures were the same between groups. I guess one of my concerns that the study is being done though by the people or person who invented the whole package. Oh, yes. And I yes. have a lot to say about that. Yes. <laughs> and, and so I think, so I think that actually in some ways picks up the sentence in the, in the introduction in which they said, we're going to compare the individual components to the whole thing. And a priori, we think the whole thing is better. And we're going to design our statistical analysis around the whole idea that the whole thing is better. Mm-hmm. Um, they could have done the study in several different ways. They could have done something similar to what they did of a, we're going to compare all three arms 
Um, but they could have used a two-sided p-value instead of a one-sided p-value and said, we're not going to make a statistical assumption about which one of these is going to be better. And then at least one other way they could have done it was with the idea of a non-inferiority trial, which is to say, we will test to see if DBT skills and DBT individual therapy are no worse than the full DBT components. And you would have had to have set the inferiority margin the like how much worse it's going it's okay to be and still be considered not worse does that make sense what i'm confused about is that that makes so much sense that now i'm wondering why wouldn't they have set up that kind of format that seems to be the actual question which oh, is I know. there's a very simple answer to that is because they do not have the sample size their study design maximizes the power they have to find a difference and so you That's could why. say, well, should they have done a trial four times this large to let them do the ideal statistical approach, the ideal study design? They barely were able to get this number. They had Correct. to relax their criteria. So, yes. so no, I don't feel at all judgmental about them doing what they did then. Although I still think the one-sided p-value is something I still have a really hard sort of time getting my head around. The problem is that we don't trust them for their reasons for making that prediction in the, for this study. <laughs> like it's all about who is doing it and why. Right. We are concerned that they chose the one-sided p-value because they are the people who created DBT and they were so convinced that DBT as they had originally designed it would would win would so be I better have a, yeah. a, i guess a dumb question i guess i'm i'm gathering as you talk about this that the one-sided p-value presents a lower bar to pass it does so, good i'm actually really glad you asked that question because i was afraid <laughs> we were going to trample all over it let's go kind of back to like the what's a p-value right a p-value is the amount that you are willing to say my results could be from chance, but I'm going to accept them as statistically significant. And we typically set that at 5% just by convention. And when we have a two-sided p-value, right? So if you're comparing intervention to placebo, you, and you have, you're actually allowing like two and a half percent margin that placebo could be better than intervention and a two and a half percent margin that it could go the other way. That's that's contained within the five percent. So if you only have a one-sided p-value, instead of it being two and a half percent in either direction, um, I will tolerate five percent all in one direction. Does that make sense? Yes. No, so yeah, I mean, you're basically making the landing pad twice as big when you do a one-to-one -one test. And I mean, <laughs> I don't think I have ever really uh, gotten that before. And and I will say that um, if you read like textbooks, they will say like a one-sided p-value is reasonable for things that can't go in two directions. Like if you're measuring height, height can't really go down, right? It can stay the same or it can go up. So a one-sided p-value is appropriate. I think it's important to understand though that, that all of this stuff is just convention. And I really do think that if you have a reasonably good, this is getting back to my other soapbox of equipoise, 
into this territory. But if you have a reasonably good belief that it is something is going to be superior to something else, like, you know, is a psychiatrist better at diagnosing depression than, you know, like my seven-year-old, then it is appropriate to use a one-sided test. If you really think that it is not possible for the, it to be, you know, it's not like evil to do a one-sided test, but it, you do have to justify why you're making that choice. And, and I think we don't feel like in this case, it was especially. It's, it's sort of right on the edge. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, I believe them, but I believe them with like an arched eyebrow. Yes. Yes. So you're like, oh, really? When they <laughs> well, well, it's interesting because it starts with the idea that more is better, you know, and, and, and so what they try to do is make sure that the doses are the same. But it seemed to me that a lot of times in my practice, I've had a lot of patients for whom, you know, they tell me at a certain point, you know, more visits is actually not helpful. It's creating more stress in my life. It's hard to get to these appointments. It's taking time away from other things and adding other burdens. So, so I don't know that I share the assumption that they would have that it's always better to have the whole array of all of this contact. Yeah. There's a cost to everything, right? So even if you just looked at this from a financial perspective, which is why it happens that people don't get the whole thing, it's, it's expensive. If I you think could prove that one component was just as good, that would be awesome for everyone else, except for Marshall Linehan. So there are times when I read this paper and I feel sort of like the initial approach was like, all you people in the community, you're doing it wrong and we're going to prove to you that you're doing it wrong. If you look at their power analysis, they were only powered to find an effect size of 0.55, which was preposterously huge for a psychiatry study. And they didn't control for multiple testing, I don't think. Like, it's just random that they found that difference in the year post-treatment. The best explanation for that is that it's a statistical difference. Final sentence of the abstract makes the claim that interventions that include the DBT skills training are more effective than DBT without skills training and standard DBT may be superior in some areas. So it really did feel like, well, wait, the point of this was to, to prove that the whole package was really needed to have the same suicide prevention effects. I thought that was sort of the main point. And you didn't show that actually, but now you've got a few minor things, which as Dr. Troop said, seem pretty minor and maybe just statistical blips. So- And there's so many outcomes. So yeah. many outcomes. I just sort of throw out their conclusion sentences. The study is not, big enough or robustly designed enough to draw good conclusions from it. I find that actually kind of reassuring to hear you say, <laughs> because I, I did kept, keep, I kept having that feeling that like, boy, a lot more is being made of this than really is justified. And, you know, I, I have to say we're, we're, I'm being, you know, at moments critical of the paper, but, you know, I, I don't, feel critical of Marshall Linehan about this. I actually think of her really as one of my heroes in, no, of course, yes. in the course of my <laughs> whole career, you know, that, that I really, you know, have been in the field through the time when, when borderline patients with borderline personality disorder were just 
thought of as terrible patients who we couldn't do anything for and were just going to uh, do terribly. When Marshall Linhan came along and actually demonstrated that you could actually do things and these patients would actually engage in treatment and not just be difficult patients. It, she's kind of, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, and she's amazing and DBT is amazing, but the study itself is not amazing. So to come back to our starting senses, I think in many ways, the phrasing of the question in the discussion, which is when they say- No, they're being honest in the discussion. The focus of this trial was to determine whether the skills training component of DBT skills is necessary or sufficient to reduce suicidal behaviors and improve other outcomes. A study that's trying to do that is really helpful, in part because if I have a patient and I have the option of referring them to DBT skills group or to an individual therapist in the community, well, like, I'd like to know which one of those is the better option. But you just, it isn't, I mean, okay. So, like, I want to go back to, like, the other papers that we've talked about where we looked at this issue. Where we're looking at rare events, and we're looking at things that are maybe difficult to define. And you, she didn't go and do a study where she got a consortium of DBT providers who were doing DBT and, and get everybody together into a big study and and maybe that was because of funding or who knows. And so she has this little tiny study that just almost certainly can't answer the questions that she's answering. Like you just can't with, like they say they've included 33 people in the arm, but one of the arms had 11 people drop out and they don't say whether they did intend to treat or anything. I assume 33 included in the primary analysis, which is what it says for all arms is intent to treat analysis. I mean, is it though? Um, Right. <laughs> like, so everybody, so in all arms, patients showed reductions from baseline, right? So DBT works, right? Getting back to what Adam said a minute ago, DBT yes. works. Yes. Compared to baseline, several different versions of DBT work. I think that's a conclusion that you're pretty safe walking away with. Yes. Um, and, and even sort of more than that, like if you, if, Patients are like, what do you think is the most important thing like in treatment? And I'm like, there's only one rule, which is that there's one dialectic between acceptance and change. And we all have to balance that. Like every single one of my patients, that is their task. And she like identified this in a way that no one else, I mean, she really, I mean, it is, there's something just really awesome about the concepts that underlie DBT and the way that these things which are usually implicit and make people really stuck become explicit and we can unstick people. And so, I mean, I value that a great deal. I still do not like the study. <laughs> but th this paper is an imperfect way to test the things yes. that they yes. want to test. So we normally end with some sort of summary. Um, Adam, <laughs> do you want to summarize a couple of ta your take-home points from today's discussion? Let's see. Some of my take-homes were that I was really excited when you uh, brought up intent to treat that I actually knew what you were both talking about because <laughs> we had done that in a previous podcast. So that was, that was very exciting. Uh, more specifically to this, the, my, my take-offs seem to be that it's really hard to do what the study is trying to do, and which is to take a whole package that's working 
and break it down into its components and and see what's actually necessary and you know necessary and or sufficient as they put at the end and and i i agree adrian i think that that's a that first sentence at the end of the conclusion is is a much better way for them to approach it and much less confusing initially the assumption is the whole package is necessary can't, when things are that expensive they can't be the assumption and so the idea that well let's start with with saying here we think that there is some part that really is necessary and maybe even sufficient and let's see if we can prove it and it turns out to be very hard it seems to prove it certainly with a small study thank you for listening to this episode of the yeah no journal club prediction of the yeah no journal club is supported by the american board of psychiatry and neurology faculty innovation and education award awarded to me adrian de la cruz the opinions and views shared in this podcast are the views of the individuals and do not represent views of any institution specifically the opinions expressed do not reflect those of the abpn ut southwestern the o'donnell brain institute the ut system or the state of texas you can find the yano journal club on your favorite podcast app please rate us and write a review visit our show page at www.yanojournalclub.simplecast.com that's Y-E-A-H-N-O journalclub.simplecast.com to learn more and find links to the article abstracts. We love your suggestions. You can email us directly at yatnojournalclub at utsouthwestern.edu. Do you need materials to run a journal club? You can find our journal club superstar curriculum, the Adpert virtual training office, or by visiting our show page. Keep listening so you can stop worrying and love the literature.